Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going? How's everyone doing? Um, We have with us a guest who I really wanted to get back by himself because the last time we had him on here, I think it was just too many people. And I don't feel like uh, we got a chance to showcase enough of his brilliance because it was just... um, it's a Wu Tang concert. Co- yeah, exactly. It was, like a, it was a Wu Tang. It was a Wu Tang. But in a concert. good way. Yeah, yeah. It was good. I mean, it was a it was a panel, a lot of heavy hitters, and and you know, you were doing your thing. Everybody was doing the thing, but you know, I feel like uh, it was just too many people for for everybody to um, you know get get enough time. So I definitely wanted to uh, have you back on, especially because um, there was a section of the episode you were on where todd burroughs was there and he had to go so we had to give him a whole mm-hmm. bunch of the front time to uh you know give his point and then leave and then the rest of us had to you know so um i know you have a lot of uh great thoughts on black literature especially this book that i want to talk about that was made into a movie but i don't think i've even introduced you formally yet so this is professor uh, richard purcell if you don't mind letting people know who you are and um your specialties Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, broadly speaking, I teach American literature with a focus on Black literature, uh, mostly after 1945. Um, I, you know, wrote a book about uh, Black authors in the Cold War. Um, that kind of was the beginning of my own uh, academic research journey as a graduate student. And subsequently, I teach mostly now film and media, actually. Um, I write about it. Um, and uh, the novel we're talking about, I don't know if you want to introduce it, Passing, is something I teach quite a bit, both as an introductory novel in talking about the Holland Renaissance for a class I teach. Like It's just an intro to Black fiction class I teach pretty frequently at Carnegie Mellon University. And then I've also taught it in grad seminars. Um, it's just a great novel, um, an underrated novel, even though it's it's been it's been written about, you know, by you know some of the most important scholars in literature. So it's a well-known novel, but you know, I, I'm hope we're gonna get into it today. But it's a novel that I think precisely because it is so um rich as a literary text and has been around for a very long time, actually. I mean, I think in fact. We might be coming up on its 100th anniversary in a couple of years. I mean, I think it was, uh, I want to say 27 or 29. I can't remember the exact date. But we're coming up on 100 years of Nella Larson's uh, passing. And um, it is a novel that in every subsequent decade just gets read differently. And um, that's what is most fascinating to me about the novel is it's kind of like a zeleg <laughs> a piece of literature. Um, it always changes, always different. And I think the how we read it is as fascinating as the book itself. Yeah, and something I want to do in this interview is different than how I do a lot of others. Uh, I probably should have told you this before, but uh, I'm gonna just let you do like almost all the talking. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh oh. <laughs> but 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 I, I find 
uh, with with professor guests, that tends to not be a problem. I don't even have to usually tell them because I think I think because professors are used to lecturing at length. That um, is true. Yeah, it's usually not even a problem. I usually just get out the way and they do it themselves. But I'm for the first time formally announcing at the top that <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that on purpose to, uh, today because I feel like the kind of narrative of the evolution of the um, reception of the book wouldn't really work. You know, as in like, so what do you think about it this year? What do you think about it in this era? Right. What did this person... I, I think that would just kind of break the continuity of it. I think it'd be easier if he just kind of um, give us... I don't want to say the elevator pitch, but give us, you know, the kind of broad mm-hmm. evolution. And take as much time as you want to um, do it. Uh, the one thing I will kind of ask before you do that is you gave me a bunch of literature to read about yeah. the book. And I'm going to fully admit that I was pretty shallow. I did not understand all these layers because the book is like a novella. It's very small. It is. It's short. And I enjoyed it very much as just a breezy but thoughtful read, mm-hmm. you know? And I liked also how it was talking about class in a very yes. subtle, understated way. The mm-hmm. hypocrisies of the black bourgeoisie. One of the mm-hmm. key hypocrisies I found was very interesting was how the black bourgeoisie was almost harder for not almost was harder for claire to crack than white people which is very <laughs> is very i ironic she found it easier to reinvent herself and be among yep. white people like the there's a lot of hypocrisies of irene oh yes and the black bourgeoisie and i think it would have been very easy i think it would have been very tempting for a modern day version of this book with the type of create creators that we have now to just have um It'd be very, no pun intended, black black and white. And mm-hmm. Irene is the um, black excellence, keep mm-hmm. it real person. And Claire is the sellout, uh, some blah, 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 code switching, double consciousness, and <laughs> call it call it a day. But this is very indicting of everyone. And it kind of yes. flips the script at the end where you're kind of actually a little bit more sympathetic to Claire than uh, That's Irene. Right. Yeah, it's very... That's right. It's very uh, interesting. And when I um, was reading the stuff that you gave me, first, I didn't realize how many people have written their thoughts on this book, even people like Judith Butler. and Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, other people that I saw surprised me as well. But Judith Butler uh, surprised me, surprised me the most. The hooks. I mean, all the kind of illuminaries of, of kind of cultural criticism I've written about this book. Yeah. So that part. And also, I didn't. And this was very simple of me. The queer subtext totally blew. Mm-hmm. And once I once I saw it written about, I was like, "Duh!" It was pretty obvious. But I think because I'm so used to like a lot of modern stuff where everything is just bam in your face, I've I feel like to a degree I've kind of lost my ability to spot subtext, you know. And um, because there isn't any. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, all subtext is kind of rendered text, you know. And back then, you know, it wasn't easy to write blatantly yeah. about stuff. So people had to be very skilled. And and once um you see that written about uh in this commentaries in the book, it's just, I kind of realized, okay, so this is actually about a simultaneous um queer attraction slash repulsion happening on Irene's yep. part, which is, you know, really fascinating. I actually want to kind of, after re- reading the stuff you you sent me, I actually want to kind of reread, reread the book again. But I just want to say that up front as some kind of themes I want to revisit after you, you know, give us your 
overall narrative of uh the reception of of this book i just kind of want to front load things i want to talk about later but uh yeah by all means feel free to uh, let us know um the creation and evolution of and reset in the reception of this book yeah no i appreciate that i appreciate you uh giving me the floor i will i will also be honest to say i wasn't necessarily prepared to lecture that doesn't mean i won't say some things it's just that, <laughs> this is to say that nothing else will be formal um because as i mentioned i teach this novel partly as a way of introducing students to Harlem renaissance it's one of the most important novels of the Harlem renaissance um which is a period of american literature black literature that you know scholars um have seen as really the birth of modern black literature there's always kind of callbacks to the Harlem renaissance um whether it was during the black arts movement in the 1960s or um in the 1980s and 90s when there's a kind of different kind of flowering of black arts and literature in the u.s um and i would say even now to a certain extent uh even though the Harlem renaissance not, might not be the the location that people oftentimes think about as, you know, parallel to our own moment of, you know, you mentioned the word black creators and or the term black creators at this moment of kind of black artistic acceptance uh, in mainstream America, kind of rethinking of that acceptance. Um, but the Hall Renaissance, I think, really is a kind of crucible for a lot of uh, reoccurring themes that um, black artists and writers face when uh, confronted with like mainstream acceptance. Um, and about commercialism, about authenticity, um, all these things were happening in the Harlem Renaissance um, and reoccur over and over again. I think they're more intensified now more than ever, but they are still there. So this not, I think that context is really important to understand Larson's novel because, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, some of the famous figures of the Harlem Renaissance, um, even though some of them weren't in Harlem per se, um, were around it um, you know, from Langston Hughes to Gene Tumor, um, Zorno Hurston, Jesse Plum, uh, Jesse Fawcett, I'm sorry, who wrote another very famous passing novel, um, Angela Grimke, W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, there's so many of the kind of titular Black figures, figures of Black literature um, were kind of within the Holland Renaissance. And so Larson's novel was published in this in this roughly this historical period, roughly from the 19-teens until the late 1920s. There's been dispute about like when the Holland Renaissance ends. A lot uh, of scholars one, say, yeah. One, qu one quick question. Um, would she be considered part of the Allen Locke New Negro yes, type of movement? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. I just want to... In fact, Locke is... I'm glad you brought up Alan Locke. Locke is probably the one of the more important writers and kind of critics he's a scholar as well to talk about the new negro which is really the central idea that we associate with the home renaissance this idea that black people in the united states in particular are entering a new kind of phase of social life of artistic life um he penned that essay in 1925 i believe and it was published in an academic journal, in fact, um, declaring this uh, the new Negro as this figure that was breaking with the historical past um, that was associated with the Civil War, with enslavement, um, and really kind of staking out a, 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 a kind of social and cultural claim that Black people were modern, right? That were not these kind of primitive uh people associated with you know this kind of historical state of 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 enslave of enslavement um 
The idea of the New Negro didn't start with Locke, though. I mean, it's been around basically since the turn of the 20th century. So other Black figures use this term. Um, even Booker T. Washington and others. It just really kind of became more well-known with Locke. But it's an, I, I mean, when I say old, I mean, by the time he wrote that essay, that term had been around for at least a couple of decades, if not more. I feel like even since then, we've had several new versions of that, you know, whether, like, there was a, there was that essay I read in the 80s, like, like the, the cultural mulatto, and that one was, yes. you know, and then even a simplistic form with Pharrell and, and talk, announcing he's, he's new black, that's that kind of a dumbed down version of the same kind of a concept. But uh, to, to, to pick up where you left off, though, because I, I don't want to drop your flow, you were talking about p- people disputing when the Harlem Renaissance ended. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people say it's a depression when, like, the economic uh, depression of of the night, late 1920s and 30s was, like, the end of this moment of um, of kind of cultural renaissance for Black people. Um, again, this is just... It, that is one... Ben- that's one marker of, like, when it supposedly ended. Um, and that's also an ending that's associated with something called the Jazz Age. You know, like, it was really this kind of culture, this economic downturn that put a kind of the breaks on the kind of money and affluence that was really underpinning some of the um, the writing of the Harlem Renaissance. Because, you know, people like Langston Hughes, for instance, had benefactors, people who were giving them money to help them write. You know, that's a kind of important backbone to the um, this artistic moment where, where kind of philanthropy and benefactors that were helping Black people um, write their books and stuff. Um, so the as a quick aside, you just made me think about this. So the the cultural mulatto term, um, that was something that came out of this essay by Trey Ellis called the New Black Aesthetic. So to your point, like this newness is just something that we kind of always return to over and over and over again. Um, and I remember when Obama was running, I think Ellis came out and wrote something like, here we have it, the example of like, you know, the cultural mulatto, someone who like walks between these two worlds, right? Black and white and socioeconomically and so so much and so forth. Um, yeah. Oh, real quick. I was giving a YouTube uh, stream. I was talking about the cultural uh, mulatto concept and someone got really upset in the comments and it's like, mulatto is an offensive term and you're canceled and this and they gave me a whole history of, you know, Black people are not mules or descendants. And I was like, okay, I'm just describing the term that, that he uh, used. But I just found it kind of uh, interesting and funny. Like, you try to talk about a concept and people got, get kind of caught up on the, you know, and then and it's just interesting how like, like language changes and everything. And it's like, I didn't want to start calling it culturally biracial. I'm like, it just sounds weird to revise someone else's concept, you know, to be politically right. correct. But yeah, I'm just saying that uh, please don't bother us about the fact that we use the word mulatto. Like, like, <laughs> well, it's like, just for reference purposes. Yes, yeah, just, just, just for reference purposes. That's why I throw that out there before someone starts, if someone's already typing furiously somewhere. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I know. I, it actually is funny because it happens in my classes all the time. So I always have to tell students, like, I don't get mad if you say, if you use words that are quote unquote inappropriate, inappropriate, as long as like, if it's a reference, that's fine. It's not like you're, you know, but there's, a, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, there's a lot of fear of actually even people saying things precisely because, like, they feel like they're getting in trouble. And I'm like, hey, if it's for academic, scholarly reasons, like, 
you know, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> and we're definitely going to do that again later today with nigger heaven. So, so yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Gonna come well, back. Becton, very important figure in all of the kind of Larson stuff. So yeah. So Larson, you know, she, so this is the context in which to understand her, this novel. Um, and, you know, the thing about Larson that's really fascinating as well is, you know, she was born in Chicago. Um, like, she's not a New Yorker by by birth. Um, what's interesting about the novel is that, you know, a lot of scholars have seen very strong biographical components of it um, because her mother was um, a Danish immigrant. Um, her dad was, uh, was supposed to be mixed race um, as well. Um uh, but also immigrant from uh, he's from the West Indies, um, and so you know there's been this uh, reading of the, her interests in these figures, not only at these characters, mixed race characters in both passing, but another novel that she wrote, which is actually or I don't know if you had a chance to read Quicksand or if you read it before. Um, uh, yeah, no, I actually wasn't aware of it until I read the stuff that um, you sent, and I actually wish I did read it after, because it seems like it helps contextualize passing a lot. Yeah, quicksand is, I actually, I teach passing because it's the well-known one. I mean, passing because it's well-known, but quicksand to me is actually the more fascinating book, because where, I know we're getting a little bit into the novel now, but where passing, as you said earlier, gets into these questions of class mobility and intra-racial kind of um, politics of authenticity, of social uplift, um, of what the definitions of, of Blackness are. Quicksand really gets into it in a way that I think passing, it does, but in a much more confrontational way. Um, in, in Quicksand, and again, I know this is not about Quicksand, but it's important context because she published that a year before passing. Um, a part of the novel takes place at what, which is basically an HBCU and the main character of quicksand expresses her and, you know, and Larson did go to Fisk, um, expresses her utter disdain for the kind of bourgeois black people that are at this, um, at, at, at this fictional university. And part of the narrative of the novel is the main protagonist marrying, um, a character from, this kind of bourgeois, um, this university. And so like a lot of the kind of things that may be a little bit more implicit in passing are very explicit in quicksand. Um, but this is all to say that Larson's kind of autobiographical kind of facts, you know, have been read, you know, understandably into passing because, you know, she also, you know, and this is something that happens in quicksand actually, but she, she visited Denmark for a few years. You know, she spent a lot of time with her, her white side of the family in quotes. Um, and so there's this combination of Larson's interests in mixed race because of her own, uh, her own story. And the fact that and this is something that came up in a lot of the readings that I sent you was, you know, in the 19, well, really in the 19th century, but in particular in the 19th, in the, in, in the 20th century in kind of black literature and also in white, you know, literature written by white people, there is this interest in what's called the tragic mulatto, this idea that mixed race characters embody this kind of impossible place in the world, right? And that a lot of the characterizations of these mixed race characters in literature and also in film of the time um, ends oftentimes with them dying because they have no place in America that has these kind of very strict 
um, racialized boundaries um, in terms of, you know, socially and politically and culturally. And so much of the reception of Larson's novel in the 1920s, um, in the 1960s, when the novel kind of was rescued out of obscurity, because that's the other thing about a lot of Black writers that people don't understand, because now, thankfully, I would say, we live in a moment where Black literature is available and probably overly available. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like there is a kind of industrial complex around the reception and criticism of it in in popular culture. I mean, academics have been doing this for a long time, but now, you know, you can go to the New York Times and there's, you know, a, a style section column about like, you know, and the new black canon and things like that, right? Where like now we're in a moment where it's very, you can't get away from it. And again, I think this is actually an achievement, but this is all to set up the point uh, that oh, yeah yeah finish what you were setting up and then I'll guess the question yeah this is all to set up the fact that really it wasn't until the 1960s when a lot of figures that now are canonical were actually brought back into circulation as important literary figures Zerner Hurston's probably the most famous of these stories and Larson's a part of that actually that Larson you know um, her her legacy as a literary writer kind of went into obscurity for a whole host of reasons. Um, but um, she was kind of resuscitated, in fact, in the 1960s, uh, when a lot of uh, Black arts-associated um, writers and intellectuals, and, you know, we have this first generation of of of, of Black people in academia um, are going back and kind of finding figures from the past uh, as a part of, you know, kind of uh, redefining what we think of as the kind of canon of American literature. Uh, the question I was going to ask you uh, was for clarification about the over-availability almost of Black literature now. Were you talking about over-availability of old Black literature that people are refining, or do you mean um, over-availability as in... Because this is, this is a specific over-availability I've noticed, is there is just so much black new black writing out but one of the problems for it to me and i was talking to a friend about this last night over dinner um we have more black books than i think i've ever seen new and i go to the black to the white liberal bookstore i go to places like mcnally jackson all these places and the table the display table is so full of black books but it's the narrowest focus i've ever seen they're always like a black lesbian feminist view to fashion uh black trans liberatory view towards um film and it's it's like so many books to the point that i'm wondering like how can they all make money since they're the most narrow slice of blackness i've ever and i, I was kind of curious like which over availability were you are referring to one either or both no that's a great question i should be more careful when i say things like that uh, but what i mean by that is it's uh, i'm interested less in there is a kind of the fact that there's just a lot of books now. I mean, there's just a lot of books, period. Um, but to your point, there is also a particular genres of books. And, I'm, and I want to kind of speak to that too, but I'm less talking about the genre than what, you know, as a kind of scholar, I think a lot about the way in which there is a kind of more popular consumption of Black literature, which is good. So I want to kind of mark that. But both old and both old and new, you're saying. Old and new. Got it. Um, but to your point, it's a um 
the over-availability is more about a certain kind of critical discourse about Black literature that I find very fascinating as a scholar because, you know, for the most part, and, you know, I can think about this historically, like, it really, I would say that, and this might be a kind of tangent, but it's related, that it really was, like, in the 1990s that I would say, like, Black academic, and we talked about this on the last podcast, like, Black academic reception of um, black literature became popular, as it were, like in the popular discourse with Henry Louis Gates Jr., Cornel West, figures like Michael Eric Dice, and all kinds of like academics became more popular figures. Um, and the books and the things that were discussed in this kind of context were all in this kind of narrowness. It was, you know, in some ways, it was about the, uh, establishing a canon, which again, I think is actually, as a scholar, incredibly important to do, challenging what we think of as a canon of literature, these received understanding of books that are the books, and there's no other books involved. Like, all of this is good. Um, but, you know, as someone who's also kind of an about Marxist, I say to myself, you know, what this is producing is a market for consuming and not necessarily a market for thinking. I mean, we can't really have a market for thinking, but it's about what, you know, folks at a certain historical period, you know, roughly in the 1960s and 70s were thinking about when they wanted to kind of question the canon was not necessarily about having people consume more books. It was a way of using literature and other forms of culture to get us rethink who we are as a people, how the fun- democracy functions, how the market functions. And I feel like now the over-availability is more about expanding markets than it is necessarily about getting us to rethink the things that, you know, some critics thought these books were getting us to rethink, you know? And so that's what I mean by over-availability. It's, not, it's, less, it's more of a kind of a, a, a commentary on this is just all like market expansion rather than I think getting us to thought think expansion. About. I guess. Yeah. Idea expansion. Well, well, you know, you know, I would add an addition to that and it might not even be an addition. It might just be maybe a subset of the consumption is um, representation is uh, I think maybe it's a subset. Because I think, re- I think representation to a lot of these people is the consu- the selling and consumption of identity images so i guess it probably falls under the consumption maybe it's a more specific type of consumption that's happening but um i have a friend who uh he's been on the show before uh michael r jackson he had recently won the um tony and you know i'll attend plays with him sometimes go places and a lot of people will come up to him when i'm with him and a lot of times it'll be uh actually Two things happen. One of them is a tangent, but it's just it's just funny, so I'm gonna add it. But uh the first thing is the actual meat of what I'm gonna talk about. Um a lot of black people, particularly black queer people, come up to him and they're like, Oh my god, I'm such a fan of your work. It's so inspiring. But they never talk about the ideas of the work. They always say, you know, as a black queer person navigating white spaces, it was great to see uh black queer bodies especially black larger queer bodies and this that and they always discuss the work as a piece of representation that mirrored them that helped validate them but they never like get into like hey i really liked um the themes of this and 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 they'll say stuff like i'm an aspiring writer myself but they never say like uh do you have any things that help me be a better writer they just ask do you have any tips on uh how to better navigate white spaces and and be seen and 
over and over with him, I was like, do you ever get any other type of, you know, he's like, no, this is mostly, you know, what uh, happens. The, the, the second thing that is kind of tangentially related, but just funny, right, is um, a lot of uh, rich white patrons of the art. Maybe it's kind of related because white patronage is a running theme with Nella Larson, both in her real life with the author of Nigger Heaven and the white author, oh, yes and the white patron in so actually i take it back maybe it is kind of related to this right a lot of these kind of white patrons of the art who are also like you know supporters of uh, his work would come up to him while i was with them and i noticed um white people of a certain ilk you know people are like just rich enough that you could tell they just have not been around black people much even in like you know passing like these are probably, probably the kind of people who could afford like white nannies even like you know i, I always look at that's, rich. <laughs> that's rich rich when you, when you can actually get, get white nannies and stuff right uh but regular rich is when you can get like you know foreign or black nannies when you can get white nannies these type of people and i would say to him once i was like i noticed they always talk to you like your dog died whether it's good news or bad news like like they'll they'll talk to him like this right <laughs> um when his play was closing, they're like, "Oh, Michael, how how are you? How are you dealing with you know the the, the play closing? Hope everything's okay." Oh, but then, but before that, when you know the play was nominated for Tonys and doing well, they were like, "Oh, Michael, congratulations! I heard the play's doing well. How do you feel about that?" <laughs> like, they have the same tragic. And as I'm thinking, like they really just think being black is just the worst thing <laughs> it's like it's like both yes both addresses to me have the undercurrent of uh you poor black beast <laughs> like oh are you still black today <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like god i'm not you <laughs> like, like no matter whether it's yes they're being uh complimentary and encouraging or trying to be sympathetic and empathetically sad <laughs> they still it bleeds through they just view your blackness as kind of just tragic yes. prim primitive you know like you only learned to read five years ago and things are going so well <laughs> what, what happened it's like, yeah it's just, but the, the consumption thing is i just feel like uh that's uh, i don't know i'm sorry go, well, go that's, back no, that's exactly no but that's a great point and i think that it relates to not only larson's novel and also you know the various attempts to recontextualize, recontextualize it, which have happened, you know, over the last almost almost a hundred years, right? So 1929. So that's like uh, six years from now. We're gonna have a hundred year anniversary of of passing. You know, uh, Larson's kind of resuscitation in the 1960s and 70s was difficult because for people interested in black arts, kind of trying to associate kind of black studies relationship to American literature or literature in general. Her politics are not as aligned with some of the ideological and political components of it. Um, and so, you know, in the midst of kind of rethinking the canon, establishing a tradition of Black literature that were coming from some quarters of Black academia, Black public intellectuals, like she was, is a difficult figure to, um, to revive, I would say. Um, and, you know, that was also happening along the line, and this kind of goes to something you were saying earlier about, um, we could start with kind of more feminist, but also lesbian and queer scholars who were also doing the same kind of work in the 60s and 70s, um, but really whose work kind of, you know, I'm thinking about Deborah McDowell, who's one of the more famous of these uh, 
scholars to write about a kind of queer reading of um, or lesbian reading of passing. Like all that work was kind of the groundwork of what was laid in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and so this is to the point about you were making earlier about people looking at us or looking at the stuff we write as just inherently tragic is bad and, you know, focusing on um, like, what is it? And I guess my point is that what is it that people want to consume is really the question I always ask. Like, why is it that that's the story we want to tell or we, that we think people, that I shouldn't say we, because I don't think that's the case for creators oftentimes. Why is that the reception of the things that we create oftentimes? Because um, like, this the- is a good test with Larson's novel too, because Larson's novel it, like I said, it's this kind of like Zele kind of Rorschach test of how people want to look at Black literature or look at Blackness. And there's a reading of that novel that is very different, I would say, than oftentimes the kind of conventional way in which it's it's read. I think even this is something even the movie itself that you know, I'm sure we're going to get into at some point um, uh, kind of echoes. It's like the way we want to see these things versus maybe thinking more about reading what the novel is also saying and, and versus marginalizing a lot of that to make a more kind of tragic reception of it. Yeah, I think one thing that complicates um, that tendency is that I think there is a certain type of Black creator that realizes this whole um, idea of certain types of white people whose fixation with Black people is oh, so primitive and tragic. Um isn't it just sad that they, they that they exist or whatever, and they craft work around that? Like, for example, like the movie Moonlight was very, very celebrated, but to me, like mm-hmm. Moonlight was like the movie Precious to me, and that you know it was just mm-hmm. kind of a black suffering movie. Like, uh, it's it was to me there for white people to. I call them like beautiful struggle movies. Like the movies are like very lyrical and beautiful looking, and they almost mm-hmm. kind of fetishize. Uh, black struggle like um look how good these guys are at suffering like i bet you couldn't keep your head up after (laughs) suffering like that you know and it's kind of a mix of uh pathetic admiration mixed with thank god that's not me happening and there's a lot of people who will um cynically sell that they'll know that's what white people uh want i mean and and it worked the movie is very well like regarded but and it looks like a music video it's so cinematically like gorgeous looking i, I mm-hmm. give the movie that you know but it just to me it almost makes it worse to make the struggling look like there's another movie i didn't actually see but it just looks so much like this i didn't bother to watch it uh there's a trailer for a movie waves and that thing that made the black struggling look really like gorgeous and technicolor and all this funky lighting but um yeah so, yeah, to go back to what you're saying i just think uh not only is this tendency out there it gets complicated by and i think it's probably existed since the beginning of black literature i don't even think it's even a new thing to be clear uh i think there's probably always been figures like this i just realized i'm going to give these white patrons and and um supposed do-gooders what they want to um read you know what i mean do you feel that larson now i'm asking you questions do you feel like larson um that is that how you view the reception of that novel do you think that like larson is because i'm not disagreeing necessarily because thinking about the public and thinking about you know a book as a kind of commercial product is something that is not you know out of bounds for any writer 
um, because they are, you know, so I'm just curious if you think that that kind of reception and thinking about public reception of the novels was part of Larson's process, right, uh, um, in, in writing it. I think what makes it different with Larson is that she seems to be actively interrogating that tendency within the work, which what which is why I would yes. say no. For for people who um haven't read the book or seen the movie, so don't know what I'm talking about, uh, there's a white patron character in it. And Irene yep. has these very fascinating, and this is one of the things that I think really separates an old telling of a story like this and what it would be like today. Like today it would just be a lot of talk about like, you know, black bodies and um white like there's a way today in which there's a lot of like agency taken away from like the black characters and a lot of their bad choices and it's mm-hmm. about how to, like the um white supremacy brainwashed them and all this stuff. And I feel like today they'd mostly focus on on that about um a good example being on the show Lovecraft Country. They had a passing episode, like episode five, and I thought it was just terrible. It was shot through with presentism. It was really bad. Um if you want to see an example of like the type of approach to a passing story that I'm talking about that I think would have taken a lot of the agency away. Um it, it's it's the it's all about the, the white people's fault for unknowingly or knowingly making the black person um uh, hate themselves. But uh Lars I felt was more nuanced. She's talking about kind of like it's so subtle. It's hard to even just say in an easy answer. But like when the black guy is dancing with the white guy's wife, and there's so many weird things happening, and yep. he, and you don't get the idea that this white guy is a cartoonishly clueless white ally. Yes, he's a little savvy about his own uh, what he gets out of it in a way that I love. I feel like in a modern thing, he would have just been like a clueless white guy that was unaware of his racism, and Irene would have had to like just. Uh, kind of check him and educate him, you know, and tell him that he needs to read bell hooks or something. You know what I mean? And in this thing, mm-hmm. they're both kind of admitting their complicity and what they get out of it. You know, like for example, Irene, and you might you might disagree. I think that's what makes you know a novel like this good. Is I think because it's so much nuance and subtext. You know, right? My take on it could be totally wrong, or you could be totally be different. But I felt like they're both talking about what they get out of the image of the black you know primitive and she kind of right. and she kind of talks about you know how it's a certain currency it's a certain social capital currency to the black person that comes from um that you know like like, like the, the black guy that's right more sexual a better dancer and everything and the white ally is talking about his own um fixation on it and how he gets off on watching his wife dance with the guy it's it's all and, and for those reasons i think you can't say Larson is just selling black protagonists or that's if, right. If anything, she's kind of um, too hyper aware of it and too she, she's, she's teasing and playing with it too much in the text, you know, to just be cynically. Um, cause, cause I think it doesn't work if you call attention to it. What, what that type of tendency of selling black protagonists, you know, like, uh, yeah. So I hope that answers. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm glad you said that because I absolutely agree. I do read this novel as um, Larson's very um, hyper self-aware attempt to create a portrait of the complexities of race and Blackness in particular as a kind of consumed thing in the 1920s. I mean, this is the, this is the context she's in. 
um, you know, and her by and her and her story about it's fascinating because you know I kind of gave a little bit of the the part of it about her mix, you know, mixed raceness, but also that you know she was introduced to this this kind of social circle in part because um, in part because her husband was a physician. And so um, a physicist, not a physician, a, a physicist. And so she kind of was introduced to this kind of black literati and professional class um, in the 1920s when they moved to Harlem that she's not of um, necessarily. Oh, that part I didn't know. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. And so like, you know, they moved. I think she was living in Jersey at some point uh, in, 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 in the... Uh, in the 19 teens, but like she, you know, they moved to Harlem and then she is introduced to all these figures. And so, um, you know, and, and Larson is not necessarily a black bourgeois kind of figure. Um, and so Trevor, to your point, it, there is just no reason why she would kind of write about them in this kind of, you know, aspirational. I mean, some people do that, but that's that's definitely not my sense of the novel either. That she's not writing from them about them any kind of aspirational, um, especially given quick excellence kind of way. That's exactly right. No, not not in the least bit. That there is a kind of probing, kind of questioning about these issues of class and identity um, that were uh, that were at play in in Harlem at this point that are very much in the novel. I 100% agree. And again, this is why, you know, when, so I'm going to, I mean, no one can see this, but this is actually the copy. I'm holding up a copy of Quicksand and Passing um, that was published. Um, I want to say it was in the late 80s by Rutgers University Press. This is the, this is literally the copy that I had in, in college. And the reason I'm holding it up is because these two novelists are over and published together. But it's rare that people actually talk about quicksand. But like, there's a continuity between these two books that we talked about this earlier, where Larson is in both novels giving this kind of critique. And so, yes, I think that like, you know, when she stopped because you know she was a nurse and then she stopped. Um, when she was a nurse, I think a little later. Um, but she um, was a librarian for a while. She took a she stopped she stopped her kind of career as a librarian um, in for a bunch of reasons, but part of it was to write this book. And so, you know, it's just always important. And I think this happened in like the 1926 or 25, I can't remember what year it was, but the point is this is the moment where she's kind of like even more kind of being dug digging herself into this world of black literati. And so, you know, she meets uh, Carl Van Vechten in this moment. And so to your point, there's always a distance from this, whether it's because of how she was born this kind of internationalism that's a part of her 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 life, right? That her mom's Dutch and her dad is from the West Indies, you know, apparently. And so, like, she's always kind of an outsider. And I do agree, like, this outsider perspective is something that is very much shot through the novel. And I was going to say really quick, I know we're not talking about the movie yet, but that's something I feel like the movie lacks is as a kind of the way the movie was shot, you know, from the perspective of the camera, this novel works precisely because uh, for those folks who haven't read it, it's a kind of third person, but limited view. Right. So like the novels told by a, a, you know, a kind of unknown narrator, but it's told through um, Irene's perspective. Like much of the thoughts are like, you're getting, you're in her head. 
And the movie is kind of shot more as a kind of conventional. I mean, you know, this is not to say that the, you know, there isn't a perspective in the movie camera, but this, but the film does not give the kind of filter uh, of consciousness and memory and all the stuff that the novel gives. And I think that that part of the novel is so crucial to yeah. all the satire and all the kind of like knowing kind of think, um, subtlety that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think it's a narrative device that's not that popular anymore. So I think it might have confused right. Rebecca Hall or the screenwriters. And I know exactly what you're talking about, right? It's a third party narrator. A lot of the times, when you have a third-party narrator, they're omniscient and all-knowing, so they kind of describe everything. But this third-party narrator, it's really a first part. It's really a first-person narrator because the narrator doesn't know anything that Irene doesn't know, you know, and it's limited by what Irene knows and doesn't know. So it's a very subjective narrator, even though they're speaking the um, third person as an outside. Um, observer and you don't really get the sense of this movie as a pov movie you know it's a very flat objective that's exactly right yeah camera camera lens which um because it's something they do and again i don't want to go too deep into the movie until i'm sure that we're done with your uh narrative or the reception of the book but one thing i didn't like about the movie i think it's because of what you just said about making the camera lens a little more objective and omniscient is they make it seem a little more obvious the idea that the husband is having an affair with um claire that's right they don't definitively say it but they tip their hat to it a lot more like what you're seeing from marine's point of view it makes it seem very obvious that she's onto something even if they don't explicitly confirm it whereas in the book it's portrayed very much more as a paranoid thing where you're like is she right to see this or is she just being very very paranoid is it that's right yeah yeah and that's something i think uh hurts hurts the movie but before we go there i want to make sure that you feel like you've closed the arc on your description of the reception of passing or there's anything else that you feel like you need to say take as much time to say it as you need this is not a yeah No, I appreciate that. So no, I mean, I, you know, in, when it was published in 1929, um, like the sales, like it wasn't like a kind of bestseller, um, but it was reviewed positively at the time. Um, but it wasn't like a kind of, na- I mean, it didn't have, it wasn't a novel that was in the national consciousness, I would say. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the kind of trope of passing of this kind of quote unquote tragic mulatto um, was very relatively well-known in literature at this point. And so a lot of the readings of it were kind of framed in that way. Um, and the only one thing, this is just to be going back to something early, just to kind of close this up, but it's incredibly important in our modern reception of the novel. I mean, modern by like the, you know, thinking about the the, the filmic re- adaptation of it. But a lot of the way that that, that film understands the novel is framed by this moment roughly from the 1960s to the 1980s when African-American literature became, you know, a very important um, academic field of research and scholarship, like in universities. And a lot of that was just kind of effort of, you know, lots of scholars and activists kind of bringing the the discipline into like legitimacy. Um, And um, so a lot of these receptions of the novel as a kind of feminist 
uh, text or as a, as a, as a lesbian text, um, this kind of, you know, uh, uh, McDowell's kind of Deborah McDowell's important reading of it. Um, looking at the novel, uh, you know, as issues of class and kind of mobility, uh, looking at it as an important canonical text, all that really is recent. Um, and that, and when I mean recent, I mean in the last, you know, really 40, 50 years. And so, you know, it's just important to kind of remember that, um, that our, like the novel is kind of been reintroduced to us in a new way because, you know, Larson as a kind of figure, as a, as an author, that novel kind of went to obscurity for a couple of decades, actually, um, in, in the 19, you know, in the 1930s. Um, it's because she kind of faded away, um, from, you know, from, from like as a, as a literary figure in the public. And it really wasn't until, you know, roughly starting in the 1960s and 70s that she kind of returned uh, to uh, discussions of Black literature. And so this novel, you know, the fact that it was remade into a, made into a movie, to me, is utterly fascinating um, because of this reception history. And so again, like I mentioned earlier, like it's always like a test. To me. It's a test of like where we are, the way that a novel like this in all of its ambiguity and, and you know, in, its, in, in the baggage of it, is kind of seen because you know a lot you know one again this is not to say that the race part of the novel isn't important it was important to Larson it was important to the way it was framed in the 1920s when it was uh, published um, but to our point about narration and what the literary devices of the novel give us when you read it a lot of that is lost um, not only in the cinema the cinematic version but also what the novel is as a kind of character study between these two, uh, uh, Claire and Irene, um, there's a part of it that's obviously a, that is about race, but some of it is about a whole bunch of other issues around race and class, um, around national belonging, about like what makes an American. I mean, there's that great, a great section in a novel when, um, this is right in the beginning, when Claire and Irene first see each other for the first time, when um, Irene is talking about like being mistaken for like a gypsy and a Spaniard. And I mean, these are the words she uses. So again, just to check, this is not, I'm not using the word gypsy because I think it's an acceptable word, but the point yes. is that, you know, it's about this moment, you know, if you think about it in the, in the mid 1920s, and if this is going back to the Alan Locke part uh, that you mentioned earlier about this moment of the new Negro, when you read Alan Locke's The New Negro essay, he talks about Harlem as this international place. He's like, all these Black people from all over the world are coming here. He, he compares it to um, Dublin, actually. And he compares it to other European cities of a kind of cosmopolitan demographic because he's, calling, he's seeing Harlem as like this international um, place for Black people, actually, right? And so Larson embodies that, in fact, right? Um, and the novel actually reflects that in some of the way it talks about race. Like it talks about Brazil. Her husband like is fascinated with Brazil and thinks about moving there. There's an interesting parallel between that and um, Claire's racist ass husband who hates Brazil because there's too much mixing of black and white people. And, you know, it's like this kind of hell of identity. Whereas Brian, um, Irene's husband, sees it as this place of freedom. Right, so the novel actually has this kind of really cool global kind of awareness about identity. Um, 
that yeah. again gets i'm sorry go ahead Jeremy, sorry oh, no no go, go ahead no that that kind of gets lost when you kind of just really zoom in on a particular part of it but to me the zooming in is what is fascinating because like it's it's more about us than it is about the novel because i think the novel at every turn is always trying to confound our um ability to kind of sit pat um in any kind of identification or subject or racial kind of position um what i was going to ask about was what your thought on brian was uh between the novel and the book i thought brian who's um claire's husband is a very interesting character but something about him gets very flattened out and sterilized in the movie in a way that i can't quite explain like there's something kind of venomous about brian or kind of poisonous in his tongue but it's a kind of bitterness that i don't think comes from being a mean-spirited or bad like when i first started reading the book my first thought was okay irene is you know the nice sensible one and brian's a little kind of sarcastic and a jerk but the more i read the book and i feel like irene kind of lives like claire the one who's passing is living in a fantasy world uh kind of that's how she's at first and irene is in reality because it's like claire is masquerading as a white woman and irene is knows that she's a black woman and doesn't pretend to be white except for a few times here and there you know yep. and uh, that's not a piece of nuance there it's like uh when it's convenient well, in the beginning to... you don't even know who like you don't know who's racial who's rate who's black or white or anything in the beginning like it's just like you have these people who are introduced in the novel and then you find out really i think it's in chapter two yeah exactly exactly and Oh, and that's, and that's another thing that I think hurts the movie is that they just hire two people who are just so clearly black, and they try to get around it by Rebecca Hall is like to me like we should have played that character. Yeah, exactly. Rebecca Hall would have been much better playing the character herself. And it's like you, um, what they tried to do was film it in black and white and oversaturate yep. the lighting to try to make them look lighter and paler, and it doesn't work. Like m- my wife came in the room. And saw um, Tessa Thompson passing as white, and she didn't know the context of the movie. And she's like, "What is this?" And like, she's supposed to be passing as as white, and then she just started, she just fell out laughing. Like Tessa Thompson had these full yeah. lips showing from under the, the hat. It's like, like okay, these were the stupidest white people I've ever seen. Like you know, to to fall for 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 this. But this one thing is kind of interesting, right? Like as the movie, as the book goes on, you start really kind of getting. Um, Irene's like hypocrisies and stuff. Like, like she judges. Oh yes, she judges Claire for living as a white woman. But when it's convenient, like, oh, I want to get a nice, That's correct drink of lemonade at this fancy segregated Chicago um, hotel restaurant. So I'm gonna pass for white, uh, so I can sit, you know, in a, in a nice fancy place for for a day and I'll cool my heels, you know. So she gets mad, and that's what our black bourgeoisie do they get mad and self-righteous about you know their pro-blackness and their anti-racism but they will partake in like racist institutions or you know avail themselves of the privilege that comes with being you know black bourgeoisie and as time went on i started realizing that a lot of um brian's sarcasm or biting or was a bitterness at this kind of hypocrisy he just didn't want to have to be part of this black bourgeois uh hypocrisy this kind of dance with um mm-hmm. 
white people that comes with comes with class and i started kind of realizing as it, as the book went on that um yeah okay his his kind of um poisonous sarcastic tone is coming from this frustration that he has with irene but irene yep. lives in her own fantasy world and i think in a way she lives in one that's more than claire's fantasy because claire is just lying but she doesn't actually believe that's right any of this stuff and the lines aren't blurred for her if anything that's where she has so much cognitive dissonance and tension like she knows she's black she knows um she's not white she just plays the role but keeps the truth in her mind at all times and keeping that truth in her mind i think is what is gnawing at her it makes her want to return whereas irene lives in this halfway world where she lives in this fantasy that racism is not as bad as it seems yep. or, or you can just ignore the truth of it or you know th- that the society stuff that she's more pro-black than she like she lives in this world of grays and self-delusion that i think comes from you know and i don't know if you agree that a lot of that gets lost in the movie. Oh yeah, like, like, like Brian, like Brian just seems like this kind of sullen guy, and you don't really get a sense of his nuance at all. No, I agree, and I just kind of to turn back to the novel for a second, and then go back, and then kind of you know leap to the film um, and Brian's character in both. Um, you know, this is where it's always important. In you were talking earlier about presentism and how. Oftentimes we look at these things through our lens versus thinking about, well, what are people in 1929 thinking about these similar issues? Um, and again, there is both parallels for a hundred for, for sure, because they go back to Alan Locke for a second and this kind of new Negro idea. There's it was very contentious, right? Because there were there were black people at the time who had much more, I don't want to use radical, but let's just call it what it is, more like socialist politics who saw the new Negro as something very different. I saw as something that was much more in line with a kind of particular ideological and political bent that was influenced by the rise of Marxism. There were people who saw the new Negro as very entrepreneurial and about like, you know, economic uplift, like the new Negro meant a lot of things. So to your point, I think that, and you know, this is also all happening in the backdrop of the things that do happen in a novel about lynching violence and you know the 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 kind of conversation that black people were having amongst themselves about what a you know it, a kind of I don't want to use the word I don't want to use the word useful but what kind of proper political stance one should take to lynching violence to the rise of fascism like all these things are in the backdrop here of the novel and a lot of the the kind of various positions in it are all in public discourse right and so i would say that actually that's not unlike where we are now but to your point i think that in watching the movie i mean and i'm going to say something snarky and i don't mean to do it but like i i can't help read that intra race conversation in the way that we have it now in 2023, which you know, I was thinking about Brian's discussion about um lynching violence in the novel in, in the movie. Um, again, there are parallels between then and now, but the spectrum of perspectives I think that are resonant not only in 19 in the 1920s, but also now are lost in the movie. Whereas then that novel kind of crackled. No one could read that novel and not think about all these various um, political positions that were that existed in Harlem 
at the moment, let alone the U.S. But I think watching that movie, it's easier to kind of ignore them because they've been so consolidated now into like very um, dichotomous positions. You either for something or against something. Whereas then I think the, the discussion about race and politics and class, again, I think the novel represents this were very complex. They are complex now too. But to say that how they're presented, I think in, in, in a film like the film version of Passing, I think is different than the way that Larson presents them in the novel. Yeah, one problem I think that happens with a lot of uh, Black art today that's trying to... I mean, you came on to talk about um, Eyes on the Prize, and I feel like this kind of ties into that because I feel like... That remake, that crazy, like, Eyes on the Prize, too. Yeah, the crazy that, too, the... but, like, the re, the reframing of all of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But even the original Eyes on the Prize, right, is, like... Yes. That's the narrative that has survived you know and and right. that narrative is that i think this was especially true when because i i think we're, we're the same generation when, when we were younger it was just settled history that the martin luther king civil rights vision won the day and it's a settled issue and uh if you were to question integration whether as a white person or a black person and if it helped black people you'd be seen as crazy whereas um before that time it was still a very open question like is integration really the best thing for uh black people and it's hard to think like that today because we've been so spoon-fed this idea that it's the highest good that can happen is to expose young black kids to white milieus you know uh to get them into those um environments and everything and i'm just giving that as, as like one one example you know but like yeah that that whole original eyes on the prize narrative um it was it was a very recently agreed to um issue but i mean before then there was a lot of talk about should we go back to africa um should we create our own separate communities in here and those kind of conversations is kind of lost not just about representation how do we get into white spaces and yep. whatever and this movie it doesn't really convey i think what, what it helped this movie is if it helped put people better into the context of what the conversation i think i'm saying the same thing that that you're saying honestly mm -hmm. the, the more i talk but you know th this idea that if you don't ex make a lot of the stuff explicit to modern audiences what the conversations were at the time it's easier for them to just view it as in a presentist way and i think that's kind of something that's a problem with this movie it takes it's better than i thought it would be i'll say that up front i thought this movie was going to be a lot worse and it's not a terrible movie um we both agreed before we started recording that the movie is actually very reverent to the book in a lot of ways as far as it's almost a transcription of the book for like a good chunk of it except mm -hmm. that there's places where it's not and the places right. where it's not it, it's very much to its um detriment like it makes some things some subtext into text in the way that i think is inaccurate and it leaves some things out and one thing is like you know what we're talking about right now is like really helping like that is what i think should have been made into text um make it more explicit what are the cultural arguments happening in the black in the black world at this time so we can understand like what their struggles are because like, for, for example today someone passing might seem a little might seem extra unnecessary because it could be like, um, oh, it's so easy to get a seat at the table with hard work and whatever. Um, 
why would you have to pass? Or um, just the idea that assimilation in general was kind of viewed very skeptically, even assimilating as yourself as a Black person. So passing is like an extra, extra step. Like the jump to passing now, I think is not as extreme in the mind of a Black person of the upper class as it is as it was back then, because um, I think a lot of black people right now are kind of passing uh, with their psychologically, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, no, I, 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 you're making a very fascinating point. Um, and I, and this is, again, I mean, I, I, I find this exercise really useful in thinking about how the novel has been adapted to the screen as well as how it's adapted to our own political moment in which you know, blackness in particular, race is valued in a certain kind of way. Um, not only in terms of like symbolic value, but like a pure economic kind of value um, and a kind of social capital. Um, I, again, I, such things existed in the 1920s, different discourse, different kind of economic context, but they were still there. Um, but to your point, there is the discourse of passing, I think now and its rootedness in American imagination as about race. It's about passing from black to white. That's kind of the the main way in which it's understood, even though it's not necessarily encompasses all the ways in which it functions, right? Because if we think going back again to the 1920s, you know, um, one of the kind of important historical contexts to the novel is this 1925, very nationally known case, the Rylander case, where uh, uh, there was this kind of sensational, like, I mean, I'm from New York, so I think about the New York Post, so I think about scandalous rags. Um, but, you know, this kind of case where a a white uh, man was suing his, his wife for kind of, you know, s- swindling him because he found out that she was not white. Um, and the whole trial was like whether or not, um, you know, the marriage can be annulled because... He was he was defrauded of his his white wife because she really wasn't. That was in 1925, and like it, it's hard to imagine that like Larson isn't drawing from some of that when she's writing this. Um, but you know, we were talking about the novel, and so there's this kind of idea, and this is about a very different context in which there are laws you know, around you know um, interracial marriages, and there's a penalty. You know, this there's a very different context in which we can think about race and race passing at the time right this is like jim crow right it's so obvious obviously passing now has such a different resonance because then like there were some real very different but still real um consequences quote-unquote value in this act but my also other point is that italians jews irish like a lot of people were passing for white Back in the day, in the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, right? Because whiteness itself was defined in a very narrow way. There's all these kinds of court cases and Supreme Court cases, in fact, around defining whiteness and what counts as a white person. And so, but the point is, in our imagination, passing is black to white, right? But to your point, I think that now it's almost as if everything is passing, right? Like we all can pass for something, Um and again, I think in some ways it's rooted in an actual American, I guess to use a kind of word in a in a flippant way, tradition, as it were, right? But the I guess the danger and the kind of stakes of it, I think, are kind of lost because in our contemporary moments, people are I and I'm gonna say something that I, I probably will want to take back and regret, 
But I feel like there's a different kind of value to passing because now when you kind of look at it the reverse, you know, we think about all these kind of scandals of some of them, the, the cases I think are mostly white women who are trying to pass for yep. non-white women. You know, that's another form of passing that's about a kind of cu- cultural cachet and capital that the, one gets from an identity that the, is clearly being exploited for very direct benefit. That's what uh, the that's benefits one, of being, yeah. I think that's one form of passing for sure. And, you know, it leads to uh, one of the points that, I, that I, I was trying to make that uh, was made by a mutual um, friend friend of ours, uh, yes. Jason England, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, and this is what I mean when I say a lot of Black people are passing. Like, yes. like um, there's a lot of Black people who were raised among um, white people and kind of learned to pass themselves off as, white people that just had black skin you know as as in like you know i am um uh-huh. just like you guys then they either get like a negro wake-up call at some point or discover their blackness in college or or you know discover racism and that they're never going to be seen as you know just a white writer or a white professor or whatever you're not going to see as a black person so then they're like in that case I'm yes. going to rediscover my blackness. I'm going to not become pro-black. So then they almost start, you must, uh, and, and and this is uh, something that Jason wrote about, uh, that a lot of these white people who are passing as black kind of get away with it and aren't called out or discovered by black people in these spaces because the black people in these spaces yes. are white people in black skin passing as black themselves. Well, no, I agree. So, uh, yeah. so they're almost not qualified to call out the white pastors because <laughs> they themselves, even though they have black skin, they're kind of imposters of... I, I don't want to say this as like I'm gatekeeping somebody else's blackness in a way. Sure, but, no, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. But, but I think to a large degree, this is these people's own self-perception of their own blackness. They feel they have an imposter syndrome to their own black to their own blackness. No, I agree. And I was kind of I'm glad you brought that up because I was I was kind of hoping and trying to wind up to that point, which is to say that that kind of social capital, that cultural capital, that economic value in blackness is is not just the province of consumption and ownership by white people or people who call themselves white. It's probably a better way of putting it, but yeah. also black people as well. Um and you know, this is uh, this is kind of a um I think that one of the things I like about Larson's novel is that she's also very much kind of indicating that. I mean, Quicksand does it a lot more than Passing does, but that is absolutely the discourse of this novel as well. It's, you know, she's writing this in a moment when that fact is also very apparent. Larson herself, I think the kind of alienation and almost dispassionate, I mean, what I like about the novel as a piece of literature is precisely the almost cold clinical way sometimes that um um Irene is like looking at everything that she's seeing but reveals a kind of um reveals a kind of like darkness I think to her as a character I mean yes. you know I, I said I joked to myself when I watched the movie that like if I and then and this is betraying my own interest I love horror movies I said if I were to make this novel I would actually learn to turn it into a horror film because like there's a part of Irene that is actually really kind of you know kind of problematic. And I think Larson is presenting it that way. Oh, yeah. Um, And so that's my point. I think to your point about this kind of question of authenticity and who gets to own racial identification, identity, the novel is very much playing in that that field as well. And it's not just the black-white thing, in fact. 
And you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I'm happy you brought up uh, Jason's article because that's the other part of it. There is a kind of cultural capital and the economic capital around these authenticity politics, which, you know, I, I'm old and I thought, you know, I grew so I was in my 20s in the 1990s. And I thought we kind of passed all that in the 1990s. And like, quite honestly, it hasn't gone away at all. You know, this kind of authenticity discourse is, if I would say it's even more important now, in fact, even though yeah. we kind of, saying that it isn't, but it is. I mean, to your point. And I think that Larson's novel actually really questions that. Um, because, you know, Claire herself, the self-avowed, I mean, Irene, the avowed, I know a black, a passing person when I see person, doesn't even know that Claire is black, right? Like when we, when she first encounters her in the yeah, novel, that's a good point. she's like, this white lady's looking at me. And it's like, oh, wait, nope, that's not a white lady. All right, y'all. So... That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.